This Torah class is brought to you by TorahAnytime.com. Today's class is dedicated in the loving memory of Sarah Basra Bichil Machel Mashal from Muncie. In uh, tribute to her yard site on the 23rd day of Cheshvan. She was born in 1927, passed away in 2011, came from a city called Veritsky in Czechoslovakia, near Munkac, and then uh, arrived in Auschwitz together with her family just prior to Shavuos of Tovshendalad, 1944. Her parents were immediately murdered. She survived. Some of the few survivors of Veritsky, which is near Munkach, many of her relatives studied with the famous Mincha Salaza, the Munkach Rebbe. She survived to become a matriarch of a great Jewish family with a lot of children, grandchildren, great-grandchildren, whom she gleaned much nachas from, and a Rebetzin of a world-famous Jewish educator, as well as one of the on her own, became a acclaimed nursing home administrator cited by New York State for her honorable ethics. I want to thank her family, her children for this dedication and contribution, and to Amen. So, I want to explore with you today a story it's one of those very peculiar, enigmatic, and seemingly absurd tales that are recorded in Gemara and Talmud. At least at first glance, it seems extremely difficult to understand, and we want to try to uh, unravel it, Be'ezer Hashem. The story is recorded in Gemara and Talmud in two places. One is in Tractate Psachim, page 57, Sachem Dafnon Zion, and the second is in Tractate Chrysus Daf Chavches, Chrysus, page 28, which is the end of the tractate. In each of the two times that the story is recorded, there's a few other details, even though basically the story is identical in both places, but together we have a full picture. The story that the Gemara tells us that we're going to focus on today is it starts off Malka or Malkasa. Havayasvi. The king and the queen were sitting. Which king and which queen? They were both from the dynasty of the Hashmanoi family, ruling during the Second Temple era. In one of the places, the second time around, the Gemara identifies the name of the king, as we'll soon see. So the king and the queen are sitting. And what are they doing as they're sitting? They are involved in an argument. What's the argument? They're debating which food is preferable to eat. Malka Omar Gadyayoi. The king says that goats are much better than sheep. O Malka Samra, and the queen says, Imriyoi. No. Sheep are better. So they're basically in a dispute. Which food is more delicious? 
lamb chops or the meat of goats? The king says the goats are better, the queen says the sheep are better. And they can't manage to resolve this argument. So what do you do? What does a couple do when they can't manage to resolve an argument? Huh? <laughs> you got to bring in an expert, right? Today they call him a therapist. So you got to bring in an expert. So they said, you know what? We have the right person to ask. Who would be the greatest connoisseur to be able to resolve this dispute? What tastes better? Goat meat or lamb? And they say there's one man, the one who eats most this type of food. Who is that? The Kohen Gadol. The high priest in the Beis HaMikdash, who was responsible for the service in the Holy Temple. And much of the service included offerings of either goats or sheep. And the Koyanim eat many of them. Now Koyanim have shifts. They were there around two weeks a year. But the Koyan Gadol, the high priest, was always there. So if you need to find out the difference between the taste of goat meat and sheep, who do you go to? You go to the one who consumes the most on a constant basis. So they say, let's call in the high priest, the Kohen Gadol. His familiarity with these animals will prove to be beneficial to resolve our debate. And it's an interesting suggestion, because from all the Jews in the entire world, he would know best because he consumes the most lamb and goat in the entire Jewish world. So the king and the queen summoned the Kayin Gadol. His name was Yisachar. He came from a town called Barkoi. Yisachar Ishk Far Barkoi. Yisachar from a town called Barkoi, who was a Kayin Gadol. He was the high. He was a high priest in the second temple. And they present to him this historic question and debate of the king and the queen. What is better? The meat of goats or the meat of lamb, of sheep? What does the Kohen Gadol do? He looks at the king and he makes a gesture of disgrace, saying, how can the king even think that he's right? It's obvious that the queen is right. Why? Because there was a daily offering in the holy temple. Every single day there was one carbon that was brought daily. 365 days a year, seven days a week, one in the morning and one in the afternoon. It was known as the carbon tumid. The word tumid means consistent, perpetual. What was that offering? Anybody knows? What was it? A sheep or a goat? Sheep. If goats were better, why would God want that his daily meal in the morning and the afternoon should be lamb chops? 
He should say Sunday lamb, Monday goats, Tuesday lamb, Wednesday goats. But the fact is that the daily offering was always a sheep. And with his hand, he went like, you know, like when you, uh, a gesture of, uh, or in English it would be, uh, huh? Disdain to the king of what a foolish thought and question it is to argue with his wife, with the queen, and think that goat would be better than sheep. So, the king was very insulted. Not just insulted, he was furious and angry at the denigrating tone and the denigrating wave of the hand of the Kayin Gadol. So he declared, since this man, the high priest, had no reverence for the king, his right hand, with which he insulted the king probably, should be chopped off. Which would make him also unfit to serve in the Beis Hamikdash, because as the sages describe in Talmud Zvachim, page 24, the service was done primarily with Yad Yemin, with the right hand. The Kohen Gadol Yisachar, the high priest, bribed the executioner. He gave him a bribe to cut off his left hand instead. Talmud says, when the cruel king found out, he discovered what happened, he had the remaining hand chopped off. It's a horrible story, I know. I don't mean to ruin your Tuesday morning. I'm just telling you a story that the Gemara records. The story is finished. He punishes the high priest the way he did, as I specified. And then the Gemara wants to know who got it right. Says Reb Ashi, the high priest did not know the famous teaching of the sages. Later it would be recorded in a Mishnah. Our sages say, and ask the question, which is a more choiciest sacrifice? Is it preferable to bring a sheep, or is it preferable to bring a goat? And the, the, the sages say, It says that a sin offering could be brought in keves, in a's, either a sheep or a goat, to teach you their equivalent. Ravinus says not only did he not know the teaching of the sages, he didn't even know a clear posik in Vayikra, Peire Gimel, in Keves, in Ez, you can bring either a sheep or a goat. Meaning, when the Torah gives a person permission to bring either a sheep or a goat, is there any preference to one over the other? So the way the Torah phrases those offerings where you can bring both indicates clearly that they are of equal stature and you could choose this or you could choose that. There were two such types of offerings, the carbon Pesach, the Passover offering that was brought by every Jewish family, every Jew, or most Jews before Pesach, Erev Pesach, could be either a sheep or a goat. So which one was brought? You could bring whichever one you want. There was no preference. Min ha-kvasim, min ha-izim tikach, you could take from sheep, you could take from goats. The same is true with a carbon chatas, 
many of the sin offerings which can be either, here too there's no preference. And therefore, the Gemara says that the Kayan Gadol Yisachar from Kfar Barkoi was unaware he erred about this by maintaining and claiming that the sheep is superior to the goat. That's the end of the story, Psachim 57, Christus 28. I ask you, what are we supposed to make of this apparently absurd tale? Are you supposed to laugh or are you supposed to cry? Is this a humorous tale? Is this a parable? Is this fiction? Is it a metaphor? Is it allegory? Is it what happened? Is it just a reflection on the monstrous behaviors of the monarchs of yore, of the cruel, sadistic, and barbaric methods of the kings of yore? You made the wrong gesture, and you were mutilated. You disagreed with the king in a way that he disliked, and he chopped off your hands. I mean, we know that that's how the Roman emperors and many, many other monarchs, monarchs operated for a wrong gaze, for a wrong gesture, for a wrong answer. One can find himself missing a head. Some Jewish kings, sadly, sadly, were no better. Is that perhaps the whole point of the story? Just to teach us what some of these kings were capable of? But how about the story itself, with all the details? Do kings and queens have nothing better to argue about than if lamb chops are superior to goat meat? And even if they are arguing about that, for whatever reason, does it have to be recorded in great detail in the Gemara for eternity? Anyway, how can you ever argue about the taste of a meal? What do we say in Hebrew? Altam v'reyach. You can't argue objectively about taste, about smell. Everybody has different preferences. You like chocolate, I like vanilla. You love lamb, I like goat. This one loves dairy, this one appreciates deli. Since, de- since when do we call in an expert to give a verdict about such futile arguments? Completely subjective about people's tastes. So he likes goats, so you like goats, so eat goat. She likes lamb, so eat lamb. What were the two restaurants in Yerushalayim? And they were arguing which one to go to. I mean, imagine a husband and a wife are arguing one evening which restaurant to go out to, which is probably not so infrequent in New York. He wants Chinese, probably, healthy Chinese with sugar, and she wants uh, vegan. So you call the New York Times food critic to your home to tell you which food tastes better. He wants deli, she wants dairy. So you're going to start calling food connoisseurs who are well-known in the world of food to start resolving these arguments. Resolve the argument. What the, first of all, what's the argument? Now you bring in the Kohen Gadol. Now, what are we to make of the Kohen Gadol's strange answer? I mean, literally every detail of the story raises more questions. What are we supposed to make of his answer? The king and the queen were ostensibly arguing about physical taste. How will that get resolved from understanding what is the daily sacrifice in the Beis HaMikdash? Did the high priest really believe that God asked for a daily offering of two sheep because he so appreciates to eat lamb chops? And you know what time? Six o'clock in the morning. 
the carbon tamid was brought by sunrise. There's people who eat meat in the morning. I don't know if anybody's sitting in this room, but six o'clock in the morning is a stretch. So did he really believe that God shows sheep every day, twice? Why? He pushed wants a meal. He wants a physical meal of lamb chops. And he enjoys the meat, and he asks for two lambs, because God's taste buds are much more appreciative of lamb chops than they are of goat meat. How does such a pagan idea, and it's mamish a pagan idea, come to the high priest of the Jewish people, the Kohen Gadol? So they're arguing what's better. They bring in the Kohen Gadol, and he says, I'll prove it. Look what God eats every day. He doesn't go for goats. He goes for sheep. Now, even if you're going to tell me that this king and queen were not arguing about the taste, maybe they were arguing about sheep and goats themselves. Which one is greater? Which one is superior? Which one is of higher stature? That only makes the question stronger. What type of foolish argument is this? What's better, a goat or a sheep? Or what's a better animal? What's better, a cow or a donkey? What's better, a cam- a chicken or a duck? A bull or a camel? A cheetah or a tiger? What do you mean, what's better? Who cares? What does it even mean? Each one has its own strengths, its own advantages, its own chemistry, and its own life patterns, its own genetic makeup. So what type of argument is this? What's better? What is this, a philosophical argument that's completely irrelevant and inconsequential? Not only that, after the story is over, the Gemara returns and says, and who was right? Not only does it record the argument, it takes it so seriously as to ask the question, who is right? The story is finished. He punishes the high priest the way he did, as I specified. And then the Gemara wants to know who got it right. And the Talmud says, not him, not her, and not the high priest. Because, from a Torah perspective, they're both equal. Not only are we recording the debate, we're taking it so seriously to the point that the Gemara then goes off on a whole discussion proving not the king was right, not the queen was right, not the Kohen God who sided with the queen was right. They were both wrong. Now, the Gemara comes into this story with an introduction talking about this particular high priest, Yisachar. He, beforehand completely disregarded the value and the holiness of the Avoidah, the service in the Beis Hamikdash. He used to wear gloves whenever he worked in the Beis Hamikdash. For a Kayan, certainly a Kayan Gadol, to wear gloves disqualifies the Avoidah. It's called a Chatzitza. Chatzitza, as you know, is a partition between the actual his actual hand the limbs of his body, and the avoider that he was doing. So wearing gloves disqualifies the service and really displayed his disgrace towards the service in the Beis HaMikdash. And the Talmud says that he was punished for this sin of the way he represented the Kohen Gadol was the leader of the, of the Beis HaMikdash. And he represented the work of the Jewish people in the Beis HaMikdash. So he was punished for this 
via the story that followed about the king and the queen with the sheep, with the sheep and the goats. As a result of which he couldn't do the avoid anymore because of this tragedy that befell him. So some would say, that's the reason for the story. We don't care about their argument, the sheep, the goats, the lamb chops. But if that's the case, why does the Gemara then go in to discuss the details of the question as though it was a serious question? It could have just said, this happened to him. You want to give a brief detailed description. The fact that Gemara goes into all the details of the story of how it happened. There's many of stories of people who got hurt and the Gemara says it was a result of something. But here we know exactly how it happened. This means that their argument is significant, especially that at the end of the story, the Gemara goes on to take sides and explain who was right and who was wrong, and actually they were both wrong. Who was this king? So the second time the Gemara tells the story, he tells us who was this king. Yanai Malko Malka Sahava Yasvin. The king is Yanai Hamelach. Or as he's known, Alexander Yanai. Here he's identified as Yanai Malka. Yanai the king. Alexander Yanai, his Greek name was Alexander Janius. Alexander Janius. He reigned over the Jewish people, over Judah as it was called, Judea, for 27 years. This is a fascinating and difficult period of Jewish history. His rulership over Eretz Yisrael, lasted for almost 30 years, 27 years, from approximately the year 103 to the year 76 BCE, before the Common Era, approximately 170 years before the destruction of the Second Basemitage through Rome. Who was Alexander Yane, Alexander Janius? His father was Yochanan Kohen Gadol. Yochanan Kohen Gadol was the son of Shimon. Shimon was one of the five sons of Matis who led the Hanukkah story under the leadership of their father, Matasio, and his brother, Yehuda Hamakabi, and his other brothers. We say on Hanukkah soon in a few weeks, Bimei Matasiohu ben Yochanan, Koyen Gadol, Chashmainoi Uvonov. The whole story of Hanukkah, the revolt against the Syrian Greeks, happened during the days of Matasiohu who was the son of Yochanan, Kayan Gadol. This is all families of Levium, of priests. They come from the tribe of Levi, they're Kayan. This Matisio had five sons. They led the famous Chashmanoi revolt against the Syrian Greeks. They liberated the Beis Hamikdash. They removed Antiochus, had a, uh, had a uh, statue of Zeus placed in the Beis Hamikdash for Jews to worship it. He had, he had the, the priests uh, sacrifice pigs in, in the Beis Hamikdash, besides the horrific, the horrific persecutions of, of death and bloodshed. The five boys with their father staged a revolt. The revolt went on for three years. It wasn't a, a few, it wasn't a six day war. It was a three year struggle of just a few thousand Jews maybe three, 4,000 Jews against 50 or 70,000 troops. As we say, Rabim biyad ma'atim, the few defeated the many, and after three years they liberated the Beis HaMikdash, and the story of Hanukkah is enshrined in Jewish history forever. They cleanse it, they find the oil, they light the menorah then for the eight days, 
And Hanukkah becomes a celebration. The conflict will continue for another 30 years, by the way. It's not like everything was uh, rosy and easy. Another 30 years they would fight. Many of the Hashmanoi boys would lose their lives in the battle. One of those boys was Shimon. Shimon was one of the boys of Matisio. Shimon had a son whose name was Yochanan. He named him after his grandfather, apparently, because Matisio's father was Yochanan. So Shimon had a son whose name was Yochanan. In Greek, he also has a name, John Hyrcanus. He, why am I giving him a Greek name when he's called Yochanan Kain Gadol? Why? Because he became a Hellenist. The Gemara says, Yochanan Kain Gadol, Shemesh B'Kohuna V'Nasa Tzeduki. He became a Hellenist, which was the group of Jews who not only sympathized, but embraced the Greek and Syrian ambitions to change Judaism and the Jewish people forever. This Yanai was a son of Yochanan, a son of Shimon, a son of Matisio. Meaning Shimon, one of the Maccabim, was his grandfather, and Matisio was his great-grandfather. This is Alexander Yanai, and he succeeds. He inherits the throne from a brother of his. His brother also has a Greek name, Aristobulus. He's known as Aristobulus I. Not only that, Alexander Janius marries his brother's widow. Aristobulus I, he takes his throne and he marries the widow she's known as Shloim Tzion Hamalka. Shloim Tzion Hamalka became the queen of Alexander Janius. It was first his brother's wife and he marries his widow. She's known as Queen Salama Alexandra and our sources Shloim Tzion Hamalka. Alexander Janius, Alexander Yanai, is known in our sources as a heinous, monstrous leader. It wasn't only his conquest to expand his kingdom without any regard for people's boundaries, that was the issue, but it was the bloody, besides the bloody civil war he created among the Jewish people. So his reign is characterized as a cruel, an oppressive one with never-ending conflict. He was a ruthless tyrant. The Gemara says that sadly he attempted to murder every last Talmudic sage of his time. One survived due to his wife, Shlomtzian, who had a brother, Shimon ben Shatach, and she made sure he fled to Egypt where he survived. He married, as I said, his brother's widow in desecration of Alocha, he once had 6,000 Jews murdered by his soldiers during the Yom Tov Sukkot in the courtyard of the base Hamikdash. The Mishnah indicates the story. Josephus describes it in detail. So it's not surprising that when a high priest disagreed with him and said that lamb chops are superior to goat meat, and how can you, and he went like this with his hand in this dismissive uh, wave of disrespect and disdain, he should have him chop, he should have his hand chopped off, and when he finds out that he bribed the executioner and had his left hand chopped off, he did the unthinkable and chopped off the second one as well. When you know the historical context of this person, and what he did, and Yosephon, uh, Josephus, Josephus Flavius, Yosef Amatisio, um, um, was uh, was a Jew. 
He was also a Kayan, and he led the revolt against Rome. This is 170 years later. And then he became an accomplice of the Romans. He wanted to save his life. And they accepted him, and they turned him into a historian. He was a great writer. And that's why we have a lot of the stories of the history of the second base. Some English comes from Yosifun. His Jewish name was Yosef ben Matisio. And then it became the Roman name of Josephus Flavius. We have his books. The Antiquities of the Jews and Milchamas HaYehudim, the Wars of the Jews. And over there he records some of the grave, heinous acts of Alexander Janius. And we have in the Chazal itself about what he did. It's interesting to note that the second base Hamikdash was a very difficult period for the Jewish people because the Hashmanai dynasty started off with such glory. They were great, righteous people. Matasyo and his children, Yehuda Maccabee and the other brothers, Shimon, Eliezer, Yochanan, they were exceptional people. But the next generation, the next generation, they became extremely corrupt. And there's the famous Ramban who explores how such such a thing can happen to the Hashmonoi family. And it was ultimately they who invited the Romans into Judea to make peace between the brothers. And you know, once you bring in the beer into the house to make peace between the cats and the dogs, the beer says, I like this house. And uh, once Rome got his foot into Eretz Yisrael, they never left. Pompeii was brought in and the Romans never left. So uh, this was a very difficult, they had a Beis HaMikdash, but it was a difficult period in Jewish history. Probably the nine best years of Bayez Sheini were the years after Alexander Janius died, the king died, and his wife, Shlomtzian Hamalka, became the monarch of the Jewish people. For nine years, the Jewish people had a woman, a female, as their king or as their queen, queen, but she was the soul, she was the leader. And those nine years were probably the best in terms of uh, respect, dignity, peace, harmony, her respect for halach, her respect for Judaism. There's a very, the Jewish people always have and had a soft place in their heart for Shlomtzi and Hamalka, who was the queen of a very, very tough and barbaric husband. But when she ultimately got the reins during those years, she uh, gave the Jewish people a very, very, uh, a very peaceful, a very peaceful journey. So now we know who this king and queen were: Malka and Malkasa, and they're arguing about the sheep and the goats. Which only brings the question again to a four. Why does the Talmud feel the need to immortalize a barbaric story about a barbaric king? This guy has done many things, and not only to individuals, on a collective basis, to thousands and thousands. But this story is recorded. In 1732... We're now going to go forward in history a long, long time. This story happened 170 years before the Second Temple's destruction. Second base Hamidus was destroyed in the year 70 after the Common Era. This story happened before the Common Era, around 106 before the Common Era. That's why I'd say, I say it was around 170 years before the Khurban of Bayusheni. We now travel way, way ahead and we come to the 18th century. The 18th century lived in a little city in Mizrich called in Mizrich in the Ukraine, a Jew named Reb Doiv Ber, known in the Jewish world as the Magid of Mizrich. He passed away on Yutas Kislev Tovkov Lamed Gimel. 
the 19th of Kislev, 1772, uh, right? Tovkov Lamad Gimel would be uh, 1772, 13 years after his teacher, the holy Balshamtev, Balshamtev, the Magad of Mizritra, Abdoiv Ber, as many call him, the Rebbe Rebbe, was the successor of the Balshamtev. In one of his teachings, he suggested that the reason the Talmud records this whole story is because it also serves as a parable. It's not just an some far-fetched, archaic dispute that a king and queen had in the palace one day about what they're going to have for Thanksgiving dinner, or what they're, where they're going to go out to eat, or what they're going to serve at their party that they're making that weekend. Rather, it also serves as a parable about a very profound theme that continues in life for thousands of years, a debate that is so significant Proof of it is that it still has not ended. The debate has still not ended. In other words, the debate between the king and the queen about the sheep and the goat represents a very profound debate about the future, the development of the Jewish people, and they touch on very profound ideas connected to education, pedagogy, and children. The Magad of Mizrich said also that the king and the queen were para, they were allegorical of two people. It's interesting, the first time the Gemara tells the story, it says it without a name. The second time it tells the story, it says, Yanai Malka or Malkasa. Yanai the king and the queen. It doesn't say the name of the queen, but the name of the king. But the Magad says, on a metaphoric level, there is another king and queen we're talking about, and this is Yitzchak and Rivka. Yitzchak, the second patriarch of the Jewish people, and his wife Rivka, the second matriarch of the Jewish people. However, as fate would have it, the students of the Magad of Mizrich, who transcribed the teaching of their master, one of his greatest students is a man known as the Choyza of Lublin, the seer of Lublin. Seer of Lublin, his name was Rabbi Yaakov Yitzchak Horowitz. He was a levy. He later became the famous master of Lublin. He came from a Polish city called Lantzut. Lantzut. I had the privilege of being there and being in his shul. Today he's known as the seer of Lublin. And he, as he transcribed the teaching of his master, he says... I forgot the details of what he said. And I'll quote him. He has a book called Divrei Emes. The Seer of Lublin has a book called Divrei Emes. And I saw this in Parshas HaChodesh, which we read before Pesach, which Chodesh Nissen time. We read Parshas Boy as a preparation for Pesach. Over there we read about the Pesach offering. The Pesach offering, it says, You could take either a sheep or a goat. So the Seer of Lublin says, a sheep or a goat, I quote, he says, Pirush, Tikhuza, Mitzadikim Gemurim, Oimi Bali Tshuva, Kamoisha Pirashnu Al Malka Amar Gadiyoy, Malkas Amar Amrayoy. As I once explained on the story of the king and the queen with the goat and the sheep, nearly, Shashamati Me'arav Isha Lekim Rabbi Reber, 
שהיו מסווכים עם צדיקים גדולים, עם בעלי תשובה גדולים, ואיני זוכר איך. I once heard from my master, a man of God, the Rebbe Reber, the Magad of Mizrich, who was the teacher of the Seer of Lublin, that the debate between the king and the queen was, are tzaddikim greater or are bali tshuva greater? But I don't remember how he connected it and how he explained it. And then in parentheses, he gives a possible interpretation. This is the Seer of Lublin. Chayz of Lublin passed away on Tishabov, Tovkov, Ayin, Dalad, which would be 1814. His Rebbe passed away 1732. He passed away 1814. There's no one in Simchas He fell from the, he fell from his room into, onto the ground and uh, he fell ill and he passed away that year on Tishabov, in the middle of the Napole- at the end of the Napoleonic Wars against uh, from France against Russia. That's the Seer of Lublin. Come with me one generation later. The Seer of Lublin was a contemporary of the Balhatanya, who was also a student of the Magad of Mizrich, the founder of Chabad, the Rabbi Shnei Zalman of Liadi, and he had a grandson known as the Tzemach Tzedek, Rabbi Menachem Mendel of Lubavitch, who has a sefer called Oir HaToyra. He was the grandson of the Balatanya. He passed away the next century, 1866, and the Tzemach Tzedek, one generation later, in his sefer Oir HaToyra, Parshas Vayishlach, says, and I quote, Isa b'sefer divrei emes meharav reb Yitzchok lancer zechroinu levrocha b'shem harav amagad neshmosayedin. It says in the book Divrei Emes that was authored by Rabbi Yitzchak Lanser. That's how they called the Seer of Lublin. His name was Rabbi Yaakov Yitzchak Horowitz and he came from Lansut. So they called him Rabbi Yitzchak Lanser. Even though he's not known today with that name. But if you know Rabbi Yitzchak Lanser, it's the Chayz of Lublin. It says in his book that he heard from the Magid, that there was a debate between the king and the queen about tzaddikim and balei tshuva, but Rabbi Yitzchak Lanser says, I don't remember what the Magid said, what the connection is, goat, sheep. And the Tzemach Tzedek says, Venira, let me share what I think, or what I might speculate and suggest, may be the explanation in the words of the Magid. So what follows now is, the teaching of the Magid, the way it's been articulated by his student, the Seer of Lublin, a generation later by the Tzemach Tzedek, the grandson of the Balatanya, who happened to be the third Chabad Rebbe in the dynasty of Chabad. The Balatanya was the first, and then his son, and then the Tzemach Tzedek, his grandson, taking their ideas and developing it somewhat, the way I understood them, and uh, applying it to our lives, and seeing how we are to understand the Gemara, in its appropriate light. And for this we have to go back to nature and understand what is the difference between a goat and a sheep. So I don't know if any here of you have grown up with, uh, with goats or with sheep, even though you live in, in, in a region of New York where till a few years ago was very common. Until today you have uh, some places uh, where you have goats and sheep. They share external characteristics. They share many external characteristics. But they're fundamentally different in behavior and also in disposition. Sheep are docile. Sheep are submissive. 
Sheep are shy. Goats are aggressive, they're shrewd, and they're stubborn. They're also naturally curious, and they're also independent. Sheep must be part of a flock. They must be part of a herd. Sheep always tend to remain in the herd. There's no such a thing as a wild, undomesticated sheep. Good luck. Maybe if you feed him some drugs that will alter his behavior. You will not find a vilde chaya, undomesticated sheep that is just very aggressive. But there are many wild and untamed goats, even when they're domesticated. Never mind the mountain goats and similar goats, which are extremely powerful. Sheep are generally more meek. They're more tame. They're more consistent. They're more dependable. Goats are tough. They're abrasive. They're not as easily predictable. We have it in Yiddish. You'll call somebody a shepsala, right? Or even in English, a sheep, a shepsala. What is that? Represents somebody who follows, follows the herd, just, you know, follows the, follows the trail. And then you have, in, 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 in Yiddish, you have an expression, an action viatzig, stubborn as a goat, or an altitzig, an old goat, which represents a stubborn, abrasive, more difficult, difficult type of character. There's an old Yiddish anecdote about, uh, some fellow, he considered himself a great scholar and uh, one of the greatest rabbis of the world. The problem is he held himself in high esteem much more than anybody else. And he would travel from city to city and uh, he was extremely, he didn't suffer from too much humility. Let's put it that way. To the contrary. And he once came to a shtetl and he had the gift of gab. So people gathered to hear his great rushes, great sermon or lecture. And he's standing right there on the bimma in the, in the middle of the shul. And he had this uh, pointed goatee beard. And he was giving a shmuz. And there was somebody sitting right in front. And as he looked, as this rabbi opened his mouth, the fellow sitting in front went like this. Went like this. And then a minute later, he goes like this. And then a minute later, like this. And every few moments he fluctuates, yes and no, yes and no. The sermon went on for two hours. And this fellow in the front seat was yes and no, and yes and no. And this scholar finishes the speech, and everyone goes over, and then this man comes over to him. And he says, wow, it was such an honor to have you in the audience. I saw how enthusiastic you were, and how involved you were. I mean, and I see how brilliant you are, because every few moments you were like, yes, no, yes, no, which means you really have a mastery of the subject. It's incredible. I would love to have you as my disciple, as my student. Maybe you want to travel with me, you know. Elijah had Elisha, Leo had, had Elisha, a Rebbe needs a student. He says, actually, it's not what I was doing. He says, what do you mean? What, 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 what was this about? I guess you agreed. He says, no, no, no. He said, for many years, he tells him, for many years in my home, in my house for many years I had an old goat. And unfortunately the goat got lost, disappeared. I don't know what happened to it. And I've been searching for it everywhere. Suddenly I see you. And then I hear you, you open your mouth and you start talking. And I say, oh, mamish, mindsig. This is mamish, what my goat was like. And I'm like, wow, this is it. But then I heard you say something and I'm like, no, 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 no. My goat would never speak such nonsense. But then a moment later, I'm like, you know, yeah, you could qualify. So I'm like, yes, 
And a whole speech, I'm just going back and forth. My goat, not my goat. Yeah, no, yeah, no, yeah, no, yeah, no. Man looks at him and says, what was the maskana? What was the conclusion? He says in Yiddish, atzig bistu abenisht miner. A goat you are, but you don't belong to me. So, goats and sheep have very different dispositions, very different characters, and it's interesting. In Hebrew, as we spoke many times, Lashon Kodesh is the ta- tongue, the holy tongue, the language which Hashem created the world. Words are never um, random. In Lashon Kodesh, words are connected to the essence. What's the name of the sheep? What's the name of a goat? Exactly. An ez. Ez means what? Oiz. Azut. What's azut? Chutzpah. Also in a positive sense. Hashem. Oiz. Hashem will give his nation goats. No, it's not what it means. It means he's going to give them strength. Oiz. Right? There's the concept of Az, oiz, yeser, Yaakov Avinu speaks and says, yeser, se'ez, v'yeser, oiz. Superior strength. Hashem, oiz la'amayitin, Hashem yivarech esamay v'ashalom, the Pasuk says. Which is a very, very critical message for the Jewish people. God gives his nation strength. God blesses his nation with peace. The Jewish people could never achieve peace if they don't first have the quality of eyes, of strength, of dignity, of internal power, holy power. Uh, peace does not come from uh, stretching out your neck to be slaughtered and apologizing for your existence. Then you're just used and manipulated and pounced upon more and more, as Winston Churchill said, appeasement is feeding the crocodile in the hope that you will be eaten last. Hashem, Why is a goat called an A's? Because of its strength, its aggression, its uh, audaciousness, its abrasiveness, its chutzpah, azus. Have a, what does it say? The, the Mishra says in Perkyavis, az ponem legehenem, uvoishes ponem leganeid. Sheep are called in Aramaic imra. In this debate, the queen says imra yoi, sheep. The word imra comes from the word omar. Omar versus dibur, there's vayidaber and there's vayoimer. Koisoimar lebeis Yaakov, v'sageid livnei Yisrael. So what do Chazal say? Amira is always soft speech, sensitive speech. Vesageid dvarim hakoshim kegidin, harsh speech. Gidin are sinews, which are a tough viber. A goat is called an ace, there's another name for it, which is gdi. Gadye yoi, that's what the Gemara says. Gadye, it's the gidin, tough. Imra, sheep, is Omar which is always soft speech. They're softer animals. They're just much softer animals. This is also true about their meat, by the way. I don't know how many connoisseurs do we have a Kohen Gadol here. How many connoisseurs there are on goats and sheep, but the fact is, goat meat, you ever cooked it? It's much tougher. It's much tougher than lamb or sheep. It has to cook much longer to soften up. So if you're planning to cook it, just give yourself enough time. It's pushed physically tougher. So these two animals, says the Magid, represent two types of people. 
There are type, there are people, and you could raise your hand if I'm describing the person you're familiar with. There are people who are more reliable, steady, consistent. What they did yesterday, they'll do today, and then again tomorrow. They usually don't rush into anything, and therefore they don't have to run away from anything. They don't make rash decisions and then live in regret. It's just not not their style. They're more traditional. They follow the tried and tested paths of life. They're wise, and when I say wise, they're wise in conventional and time-proven ways. They don't seek to rebel, to initiate, uh, to fight systems. They follow the herd and its directives. There are other personalities. I saw nobody raise their hand with the first one. There are other personalities, and they are goats. (laughs) Wild independent, <laughs> don't like when you tell them what to do. They'll all, they won't do what, you, they won't do the right thing, not because they think it's, it's, they, not because they think it's not good, because you told them to do it. <laughs> they're wild, they're independent, they're also original, and they're stubborn. They're often abrasive. They're not afraid to try new things, although inevitably they're gonna make mistakes, and often wallow in regret. They're sometimes stubborn. Now, of course, there are endless variances between all these two personality characters. It's not a sheep or a goat. But sometimes they can be stubborn. That's why we say in English, he's a real old goat. They don't follow the herd. They will run from it. They have to experiment things on their own. They will not easily submit and surrender. Sometimes they're very exciting to be around, if you don't have to mother them. They're also full of energy. They're full of enthusiasm. They have a hard time, by the way, keeping appointments, schedules, commitments. They're, they're of a different nature. Now the question is, are you a sheep or are you a goat? Malka Amalkasa, the king and the queen of the Jewish people, Yitzchak and Rivka, would sit and debate this question. It's all there in Parshas told us. Vayehav Yitzchak S. Esav. Yitzchak had a special place in his heart for Esav. Kitzayid befiv. Because there was game in his mouth. Virifka, I have a Yaakov. Rivka had a special place in her heart for Yaakov. Says the Maggid of Mizrich, the way the Chayza of Lublin and the Tzamach Tzedek explain, and Esav is defined in Chumash as Ish, Tzayid, and later as not Ishmael Chama, that's Hashem. But Esav is known as, Yaakov Avinu says about my brother, he says, my brother is Sair, right. What's another word for goat? Sair, which also is the word for hair. It says when Esav was born, Kuloi Kaderes Seir, he was covered with hair. The part of the Middle East that was given to the family of Esav is Eretz Seir. Sayer means a goat, Sayer. Sayer is a goat. Esav is called the Sayer the goat, which means a hairy man, but it means a goat-like man. Yaakov is associated in the Torah with sheep. Parshas Vayetze, Vahaksavim, Vahakvasim, Hifrid, Yaakov, Yaakov separated the sheep. Torah describes Yaakov as he grows up, 
Ishtam Yoshev Aholam, a quiet person, dwelling in the tents. Esav is Yedei he's a skilled hunter. Ish Sadi is a man of the field. In other words, they were opposite in their very nature, in their very chemistry, physical and spiritual chemistry. Yaakov was pure, refined, heavenly. For him, submission to the divine will and the divine purpose, it felt organic, wholesome, right. In that sense, he is the keves. He is the sheep, calm, tranquil, tam, dwelling in the tents and the study halls. He follows in the footsteps of his father, Yitzchak, of his grandfather, Avram. He focuses on spiritual growth and perfection. He's disciplined. He's structured, he's balanced, he's centered. The Kabbalists call him a soul of Olam HaTikun, the world of structure, the world of balance, the world of Tikun. He's an integrated soul, anchored in the values of his neshama and his progenitors. Esav is the sire. Esav is a goat. He has a lot of life, he's a lot of vitality, he's a hunter, he's a warrior, he's a man of the field. He's also impulsive. He's rash. He is uh, emotional. He's street smart. He has a certain crassness, bruteness, and physicality to him. He can also be reckless. He can be brash. He can be very impulsive. He can sell his birthright because he's hungry. That's not a sheep. That's a goat. And yet his emotions and love towards his father are extraordinary appealing and incredibly moving. When he discovers that he lost his blessings, he breaks down in uncontrollable sobs in one of the most emotional descriptions in the entire Tanakh. And as I pointed out in a class we had, I think last year, two years ago, and told us how the Torah makes sure to describe to us intricately, like in no other story, the emotions that Esau felt when he walked in to his father's chamber and discovered that the blessings have been snatched from him. And you almost want to cry with Esau, who at that moment was hoping for such a deep, intimate connection with his father, and then felt that and it was taken from him. Esau also struggles. And how do we know he struggles? In the womb, he is agitating his mother. And the Chazal say Rashi brings that whenever she would pass a pagan um, um, monastery or ashram, he would kick, he would gravitate. What does this mean? It means it was not easy for him to, to live a moral life, to live a disciplined life, to live a restrained life, to live a systematic life governed by the blueprint of the values of his own family, of his parents, of his grandparents. So in the womb of his mother, he's gravitating towards centers of idolatry where his brother is gravitating to the yeshivas of, of Shem and Aver. He's, he's gravitating to places where there's idolatry. And idolatry doesn't just mean they worship the statue. Idolatry in the whole Tanakh is a euphemism for places of anarchy, anarchy, and, and orgies, and complete promiscuity, and, and moral breakdowns. Idolatry was not just uh, some form of uh, yoga, Pilates uh, exercise. This was not Ace of Choice to struggle. This was the playing field that was designed for him. He would need to struggle against a lot of inner, many inner demons, many inner impulses. He had the soul, I don't know how to say it, he had the soul of an addict, I would say. 
He had the soul of an, what do I mean? He had the soul of an addict. He was extreme. He was deeply sensitive. He was very passionate. He was intense and he was powerful. And if such people don't learn how to gain mastery over their life, they often go to the other extreme to dull and numb the profound pain that they cannot, they cannot deal with. He's called Anadmoini. The country that he's given is called Eretz Edoim. Why Edoim? Red. Admoini. So that's why you call his country red, because he happened to be, to be a redhead. It wasn't because he was born a redhead. It's because he was full of hot-blooded, red, bloody passion. There was a deep passion about him, a warmth about him. But he was also unbridled. He was also undisciplined. Does that mean Esav was a bad kid? It doesn't mean he was a bad kid, but it means he was a different type of a child. He was a goat. He wasn't a sheep. What comes easy for the sheep does not come easy for the goat. Today he would be diagnosed with a lot, a lot of names. At the age of 11, he was already expelled, I think, from nine schools all over Brooklyn. Then they didn't have, the Torah doesn't have all these titles yet. But uh, he would certainly be described as a rash and an impulsive, uncontrollable teen who wreaks havoc wherever he goes. He can't sit, that's for sure. He's out in the field already from age two. He's in the field hunting animals. He's not like his, his, his brother. He couldn't even master the timetable. At the age of 14, he's already quiet. He's been around the block nine or ten times. The queen is sitting with the king and they're debating what's better. Sheep or the goat. And the Magi takes us into such a powerful understanding of this story in the Gemara. It's not just a story about lamb chops and goat and arguing what we're going to have for dinner. It's really a very profound story about how to understand life. How to understand your children. How to understand yourself. Most importantly, how to understand those moments and those relationships that are not easy, those children that we might have that cause us sleepless nights, but can also cause us to reinvent ourselves if we can go into a deeper place of ourselves, of our souls, our relationship with God, with truth, with Yiddishkeit, and of course with our loved ones. The Queen says, Imriyai. Imriyai means... The sheep are superior. The king says, the goats are superior. What are they arguing? For Rivka, the taste of lamb trumps the taste of goats. For Yitzchak, it's the reverse. He loves Esau. Rivka loves Yaakov. This is not a simple debate. It's a moving, it's a profound debate. Rivka is the practical woman. Rivka comes from a family of idolatry, deception, promiscuity. Rivka has seen the other side. Rivka knows what filth exists in the world. Rivka knows the depravity. Rivka knows the narcissism. Rivka knows that what seems so creative and uninhibited on one side really can lead a person to hopelessness, despair, and a breakdown of his or her ultimate life. Rivka 
knows very well the world. She's seeing her brother. She's seeing her father. She is seeing her grandfather. And therefore she favors something about the disposition of the sheep, the straight shooter, the good boy, the disciplined tzaddik. What does the seer of Lublin say from the Maggit? It was an argument in tzaddikim g'daylem, or bali tshuva g'daylem. What type of an argument is this? Are tzaddikim greater, or are bali tshuva greater? And bali tshuva here is not the name for people who have grown up in one type of home and then returned. Bali tshuva is an archetype of a personality. The tzaddik doesn't mean what we call today the FFB versus the BT. The tzaddik and the Balei Tshuva, it's no matter where you grow up. It's about your whole modus operando, your Weltanschauung, what type of neshama you have, what type of challenges you deal with. And this is an argument. Which is greater, the tzaddik or the Balei Tshuva? The person who somehow just follows the right path and embraces it enthusiastically. The sheep, or maybe no. Something else is greater. And it's not an easy debate to answer. Yes, there will be a side that will say, of course sheep are greater. Take the goats and get rid of them. Get them out of my life. I don't want to deal with them. That's one perspective. Yitzchak had a very, very different perspective. Yitzchak said, no way. I love those goats. Don't throw away those goats. He had a special place in his heart for Esau. It's not that Yitzchak didn't appreciate Yaakov. <laughs> That's not what the story means. Of course Yitzchak appreciated Yaakov. Yitzchak learned with Yaakov. Yitzchak gave over the blessing of the covenant ultimately to Yaakov. You see, when Yitzchak sends Yaakov away to find his shidduch, really he's escaping from Esau. He gives Yaakov the blessings to continue the covenant of Avram Avinu. It's not the blessings that he gave him when he thought that he was Esau. Yitzchak always knew that Yaakov is very different than Esau. Yitzchak was not the naive man who was just deceived by one son versus the other. Of course he had a, he knew exactly who Yaakov was. But he had a special feeling for Esau. The struggling soul who has so much energy and doesn't know where to place it. The Kabbalists and the mystics call Esau an Ashama of Olam Hatoyu. A soul from the world of chaos. There are two worlds. There's Olam Hatoyu. And Olam Hatikun, the Arizal speaks about this frequently. There's the world of chaos and there's the world of balance. Yaakov comes from the world of Tikun, Esav comes from the world of Toyu, the world of chaos. And Yitzchak feels that Esav is really a giant. If he can only learn to harness his unbridled intensity, passion, feistiness, impulsiveness and energy into building a world rather than destroying himself and a world. Esav can become a powerhouse of goodness, of leadership. He can be a beacon of light, a harbinger of love if he can help him integrate his goat-like forces and realize his potential. There's a famous sefer, Hechel Habracha, from the Rebbe of Kamarna. Amparshas told us, he says that Esau's, it's, it's rooted already in the, in the writings of the Arizal and the Balatanya, that the soul of Esau was higher than the soul of Yaakov. And the Kamarner says there's two people called Admoini in Tanakh. Esau is an Admoini and someone else. You know who else? David Amelech. Admoini Yefei a redhead with beautiful eyes. So the Gemara says in Sanhedrin, fascinating. That Doyeg, Ha'adoimi, who didn't like David, 
tells Shaul, David is an Admoini, he's a redhead, he's like Esav. Beautiful eyes. David and him had the same energy. Same energy. David could take on a Goliath. Not everybody could take on a Goliath. David had the same energy. But the beautiful eyes represented that David took that energy and he brought it under the authority of truth, of godliness. Very, very different. David would not just kill because he's having a bad day. Because he's having a bad mood. David took his infinity and he managed to discover the vessels. But it wasn't a simple life. David's life was not a simple life. And if you follow the story of David, it reflects on some level the story of Ace of the Kamarner says. And he says, Yaakov was rooted in the soul of Moshe Rabbeinu. Ace was rooted in the soul of Mashiach, who comes from David, which is an Admaini, who's going to change the whole world, redeem the whole world. Yitzchak recognizes this potential. Kitsayid Bethiv says the Arizal. He loved him because there was game in his mouth. What does it mean there was game in his mouth? He realized that in him there are unbelievable sparks that are trapped. And you have to extract them. There's Tsayid Bethiv. He's holding with inside of himself tremendous potential. So Yitzchak says, Yaakov is the tzaddik. We love the tzaddik, but Esav is destined to become the ultimate Baal Tshuva. What is Tshuva? Tshuva means return. Tshuva is the paradigm of a life in which I stumble, I fail, I make mistakes, I error, maybe every step of the way, but from every mistake, I reinvent myself. Tshuva requires sobbing, remorse. I sometimes have to break down and wallow in a river of tears with profound awareness of how much I didn't know and the mistakes I made, and then each one of them can perhaps become a springboard for me to reinvent myself. It's the profile of a person who has struggled and struggles with skeletons and demons, addictions, immoral cravings, and all types of traumas. Every person knows it in their own life. Remember, these characters are never black and white. You're Yaakov or Esav. Everyone has a Yaakov in them. Everybody has an Esav in them. Like every character in Tanakh. The question is maybe, what is more emphasized? What is more, what is it more that you have to deal with? And yet, despite all these demons, the Baltruva doesn't give in. And doesn't surrender to superficiality, doesn't surrender to despair, doesn't surrender to the trauma, to the fear, to the existential angst and anxiety. He will continue to fight. He is Yoidayat Sayyid Ish Sada. He or she is the ultimate warrior, the person who will transform darkness into light. And that's not easy, because to transform darkness into light, I have to enter into the darkness. I can't transform something if I'm living in an ivory tower removed from it. But it's only the Baal who takes darkness and transforms it into light. Struggle into opportunity. Chaos, he or she transforms into a deeper and infinite rainbow. His challenges are deep. But if he or she can appreciate their true meaning and their true value, what happens is, they realize that this becomes a springboard for a new humility, 
and for a new awareness, and for a new growth. And then you redefine them, and that's what it means, that darkness is transformed into light. And that's why Yitzchak wants to give the blessings to Esav. Why? Why would he do that? Couldn't Rivka sit down with him by dinner and say, Yitzchakul, you're a good guy, you're a holy guy, but trust me, I know these kids. Mama knows best. That's what you do. What do you do with your husbands? Say, Yankel Dovich, Metal Muttle, come downstairs for a moment, and he knows trouble. You call him and you say, listen, I know you have good intentions. And you always start over that way. And you start off with a compliment, and they say, but listen, trust me, this is not the way to go. In fact, that's what everybody does in Beratius. The women don't only call the shots, they tell their husbands they're calling the shots. Sora calls the shots with Yishmal, Chava calls the shots with the Eitz Hadas. <laughs> Rachel and Leah call the shots with marriage, and Rivka calls the shots with the brachas. But Rivka will not sit down with him. So the Magad is teaching us they did sit down. They didn't only sit once, they sat every night and they spoke about it. They used to speak about the goats and the sheep. This is the sophisticated and profound way of our sages conveying very deep philosophical and psychological truths in simple language. What is better? And Rivka and Yitzchak understand each other. Because, as we often say, what makes a good marriage versus a miserable marriage is not how much couples disagree. In all the research that has been done about marriage for the last few decades, they thought initially, great marriages, they don't disagree. And miserable marriages, they're always fighting. And they realized the same exact amount of arguments that good mar- that couples that have difficult marriages have, couples that have wonderful marriages have. It's not if they disagree or not. It's how they disagree with each other. It's what the, what's the outcome of a disagreement. It's if I see you disagreeing with me as a sign of mistrust, of negativity, or I see your disagreement with me almost as charming, almost as, of course, you're a different personality. That's what makes this marriage exciting. I'm not married to myself. Huh? She disagrees? Yeah, she's different. Really? Oh, you wanted to marry yourself? So don't get married. And even the Supreme Court of the United States of America has not yet decreed that you could marry yourself. Even though, even though, it seems, as one person told me, it's logical because many people have split personalities. And why can they get a tax discount if they marry themselves? But everybody understands the definition of marriage a relationship with somebody else. Of course Yitzchak and Rivka spoke about it. But Rivka understood Yitzchak's perspective. And she would not take away from Yitzchak his perspective on Esau. Because it's sacred. It's holy. It's divine. Just as Yitzchak listened to Rivka's perspective. So Yitzchak wants to give the deepest blessings to Esau because he believes in this boy. Not because he's chas v'shalom naive. He believes in this boy. If the goat will be sublimated, if the goat will be enlightened, if the goat will be elevated, it will become a source, not of finite light, but of infinite light. And that's the key, infinite light. Infinite light only comes from the transformation of the negative energy, from that which destroyed all the structures. 
Why did God make these two worlds, the world of Toyo and the world of Tikkun? Why are there Yaakovs and Esavs? Why are there sheep and goats? Why do some of some mothers and fathers have sleepless nights? Why? There is this superficial perspective, but we want to understand the truth of it. And the truth of it is, because light that fits into a vessel is always finite. Light that is infinite breaks vessels. It breaks structure. But if that light could find, could find its structure, it has to find infinite structures. Encountering infinity is always difficult because it defies our comfort zones. I have no comfortable place to put it into. And whenever I see in my life something I can't fit in, I go crazy. Because we like to wrap our brains around things. And that's the beauty of the world of Tikkun. But in the ultimate, in the ultimate reality, in the ultimate purpose, it's the synthesis of what the Balatanya likes to call Oiris de Toihu Bekelem de Tikkun. The lights of chaos in the containers of Tikkun. The lights of Esav in the containers of Yaakov. The lights of infinity in the containers of Yaakov. And for this, Esav has to transform himself, but also Yaakov has to transform himself. And to say this subtly, sometimes for Yaakov to transform himself is harder than for Esav to transform himself. Because Esav knows that he has to transform himself. His life is a disaster. Yaakov looks in the mirror and says, I'm doing great. <laughs> I'm just following the right thing. I don't have to transform myself. You gotta transform yourself. You gotta transform yourself. And when you wake up and smell the coffee, come meet me in my ivory tower. And what happens is, this character who attaches himself to Yaakov suffers from a whole new type of problem, which is spiritual smugness. Spiritual smugness is a very dangerous thing because it uses God as a crutch for not allowing myself to transcend my comfort zones and to transcend my fears. So Yitzchak wants to give the blessings to Esav. Now look at the fascinating meticulousness of the Hebrew language. What's the word for the sheep, you remember? Keves. What does kevish also mean in Hebrew? A ramp. A ramp. Right? There was a ramp going up to the altar. Allah a kevish, we say in the morning. Allah a kevish. What's the universe? You're not supposed to go up on steps to the mezbech. You have to go up on a ramp. What's the definition of a ramp? Definition of a ramp is? You see, Yaakov, the tzaddik, ascends in consistent, gradual steps. Like when you're climbing a ramp. Growth is incremental. Growth is structured. Growth is slow. You're climbing a kevish, a ramp. Goats, they don't believe in ramps. You ever watched goats? They believe in climbing walls. They take gigantic leaps. They jump over fences. You ever saw mountain goats? They jump off cliffs. And they jump on top of cliffs. Esav, the potential Balchuva, can take quantum leaps. He's not going to go on a ramp. But when he goes up, it's going to be a radical change. In Zohar, its expression is that the Balchuva serves Hashem with an infinite vigor, with an infinite strength. 
His unbridled passion can inspire quantum change in the world. Nuclear energy is dangerous. But if you could figure it out as a source of light, it becomes a very, very powerful uh, source of, of illumination. Now see this. Which animal was brought on Yom Kippur to atone for the sins of the entire nation? A goat. They chose two goats, not two sheep. Why suddenly? Every day it was a sheep. Yom Kippur, it was a goat. In fact, in English, the expression scapegoat, what's the scapegoat? You know where the expression comes from? Scapegoat? It comes from the second goat that was brought on Yom Kippur, which, so to speak, carried the sins of the Jewish people, and they took it to a mountain called Azazel. What does that name sound like? Az, and then Azazel. How many times Oiz do you have in that mountain? Twice. Azazel means a strong goat. Within goats itself, it's oiz, sheba oiz. It's the strength of a goat. The goat embodies the passion. What's this idea? A goat is going to carry my sins? Really? That's how you get rid of sins? Take your sins, put it on a goat? Wonderful. (laughs) And now go back to sin? What's the idea of this? The idea of this is very powerful. Number one, I take my sins and I place it on a goat. How does that happen? What does that mean? It means something so beautiful and magnificent, and that is you have to be able to separate yourself and your sins. One of the greatest tragedies in life is not that I did a sin. I am a sin. Not that I made a mistake. I am a mistake. Not that I did something wrong. I am wrong. And that blocks so many people from transformation. Because I look in the mirror and all I can tell myself is I'm, I'm doomed. I'm a loser. In Kippur, you take your sins and you literally place it on the goat. It's like almost, I'm not the sin. I may have done it. I have to apologize. I have to say I'm sorry. I have to look at it. I have to, I'm, I'm accountable. But it's not me. There's an I that is wholesome, that is pure. And where do I put it on? I put it on to a goat. What's the goat? What did he do? It's a very powerful idea. We come to the next step. The sin is always carrying a passion that I'm looking for. Every sin contains a secret. There is an oiz, there is a passion there, there's a strength there. There's some, there's a void I'm trying to fill. The goat embodies the passion and the strength which can result in sin. But when I can understand that, it can also result in transformation. And allow me to become azazel in the powerful, good sense. Allow me, what do they do? What happens with the Azazel? They bring it to the mountain. The Kohen Gadol throws it down. They're not the Kohen Gadol, the, the Shliach, the emissary, throws it down. And the Mishnah says, it didn't reach the half of the mountain. It's completely fragmented into little pieces. What does this mean psychologically, spiritually? How does this help for atonement? And here we reach a very profound idea. Do I have the ability to be able to say goodbye to everything I know about myself. That's what happens on that mountain. On that mountain, the goat is split into little pieces. Nothing is recognizable anymore. That's the power of truth, the ability to completely say goodbye and reinvent myself anew without holding holding up the fears that will not let me ultimately be emancipated. That's why when Rivka tells Yaakov, dress up like your brother and go take his blessings, he says, I can't. Why? 
My brother Esav is Ish Sayir. What does that mean literally? He's hairy and I'm smooth skinned. But he meant something much deeper. I can't take the blessings. The blessings is Ish Sayir. He's a goat. I'm smooth. I'm straight. I'm a sheep. I'm a straight shooter. I'm very different. Isaiah doesn't only mean physically he's hairy and my father is going to touch me and feel that I'm not hairy, I'm smooth, which is why Rivka dresses him up with his uh, uniform, Esau's uniform. He's saying, Esau has the character of a goat. I don't, he is the one who needs the brachas, not me. Ultimately, Rivka feels that at this point, Esau can't get the blessings. It would be like giving an addict money and saying, here, this is for rehabilitation. You know what he's going to do with that money? He's not going to go into rehabilitation. Ultimately, the blessings have to be given to Yaakov, and one day he'll be able to deliver them and integrate them with Esau. But now let's see the end of the story. They call in the Kayin Gadol. Rivka and Yitzhak are debating. Mommy and Tati are having a very interesting conversation about supper. How to deal with the Kindalach, right? What are we doing with Esau? What are we doing with Yaakov? Which parents, which functional healthy parents don't have these conversations? We call them goats and lambs. It's really a very deep conversation about sons and daughters and grandchildren and about ourselves. It's not just about our children, it's about ourselves. They call them the Kayin Gadol. Why do they call him the Kayin Gadol? He's the great spiritual uh, Jewish authority. Let him determine to the answer of the question, who's greater, Yaakov or Esau, the goat or the sheep, the tzaddik or the balichuva? Which soul does Judaism cherish more? Who does God love more? Which one is better for Judaism and for the world? And the Kayin Gadol laughs at the question. He's like, you idiots? This what you're calling me for? It's a non-starter. Of course God favors the lamb to the goat. Look at the carbon we bring every day. What does he want every day? He doesn't ask for goats. He asks for sheep. 365 days a year, Hashem wants sheep. He does not want goats. He'll be fine, a goat. He'll bring me a goat. A Pesach, you can bring a goat if you want. Also a sheep. In other words, the daily offering of Judaism comes from sheep, not from goats. The goats are the second tier. We love, we respect, we admire, we want the sheep. We want the obedient children who follow the straight path, who don't deviate, who embrace the Messiah. We love the tzaddikim, the righteous among us. They follow the divine blueprint for life. Yes, if we could, we're going to try to help the goats. But let's remember, they are second-class citizens. And we always wish they could have been sheep. That's what the Kayan Gadol says. And he proves it from God. He proves it from the Torah. He proves it from the daily offering of Judaism. And here we come to the remainder of the story, which now can be understood also on a metaphoric level. Such a person cannot be a kind God. Such a person cannot represent the Jewish people. He can't be the ultimate Jewish leader because he missed an important part of the boat. Losing the right arm represents something very profound. The Zayar says, Chesed Roya Yemina, Gvurid Roya Smala. The right arm represents love, the left arm represents strength, discipline, restraint. 
penalties. Gvura means strength. Chesed is kindness, love. The king says, Yitzchak. Such a person just lost his right arm. He lost his quality of chesed. He lost his quality of love. The high priest who cannot appreciate and respect the soul of Esau and understand that Esau did not choose to be a goat in the womb of his mother. He was struggling. Not every child chooses to struggle. People don't wake up in the morning and say, how can I make my parents miserable? How can I make sure to become the headache, the migraine of this family for the next 20 years? Very few people choose that. If anybody, I don't even know if anybody. Different neshamas are dealing with different realities, encounter different people, different situations, have different challenges on every level. And if all you can say is, you're a second class citizen, and I wish you could have been somebody else. Even though we can understand it from a human perspective, I'm in pain. And I'm in pain and I can acknowledge that and say, I'm in a lot of pain. It's not easy for me. It's hard for me. That's justifiable. But when the Kohen Gadol laughs and dismisses it and says it's obvious that this is not the real thing. He says, you have just lost your quality of chesed, your right arm. If you cannot respect the journey of a goat, you are lacking in love for your people. You cannot represent the people of Israel. You may be a good man. You may have tremendous qualities. But you can't be a manigistrol. You can't be an authentic parent, an authentic teacher, an authentic leader, an authentic mentor. You are one-dimensional and that's awesome and celebrate it and do your thing. But as somebody representing the Jewish people, if in your heart you don't have deep empathy and appreciation of a different journey, you have lost your right arm. But as it turns out, what happens? He actually loses which one? His left arm. Wow, what does that mean? What that means is, sadly, he forfeits even his left arm. What does this mean spiritually? What does it mean psychologically? It means he even loses gvura. Why? That's what he is. He loves gvura. He loves strength and discipline. Because in Judaism, even gvura, discipline and strictness, which is very important. Discipline is not a curse. Discipline is a blessing. Children and students need discipline. They cherish discipline. They require structure. People who mock discipline and call it love are are reckless. They wreak havoc on children's lives and on students' lives. Discipline is not a bad word in 2019. It's a holy word. It's a wonderful word, but with one condition. It's filled with deep love. It's born from deep love. It's filled with empathy. It's being sensitive to the challenges and unique circumstances of the person you're trying to discipline. Discipline that's divorced from love, empathy, understanding, can translate, God forbid, into cruelty. It becomes about, I'm a disciplinarian. Things are my way. It becomes about my stubborn insecurities and egos, rather than helping the person I'm trying to discipline and giving him or her the life they deserve and the life I want to help them build, help them polish their diamond. A high priest who looks down at a goat-like soul, who has no space in his heart for the journey of an Esau, lacks both chesed and gvura. 
both arms. Neither his love or his discipline can be trusted. I can't trust love if it runs from discipline because it's selfish. And I can't trust discipline if it divorces itself from love because it's equally selfish. Both of his spiritual arms are missing. Remember this Kayin Gadol. I told you his story. Before this story, he used to wear gloves in the Beis HaMikdash. What does that mean? Why did he wear gloves in the Beis HaMikdash? The answer is he never wanted to get his hands dirty. He never wanted to get his hands dirty with the blood and the fat of Jewish sacrifices. Jews brought sacrifices. That's how they poured out their soul to God. Meal offerings, animal offerings, for so many different reasons. A mother had a baby and she brought an offering. Somebody did a mistaken sin, he did an offering. A Nazir brought an offering. A Mitzayda brought an offering. A Zav, a Zava. Whatever the situation was. Nefeshki sacrifice. Poor people brought offerings. Their soul was in it. But I'm not going to get my hands dirty. I wear gloves. It's a persona. It's an attitude in life. It's the person who doesn't want to get dirty with real people, real situations and real challenges. I will sit in my ivory tower with my books and I'll send forth commandments. And if I need to touch something I don't like, I'll make sure to wear gloves so that nobody can affect me. Nobody can get too close to me. Nobody, nobody can touch me. I think I told you once a story I know the person with whom it happened to. It left such an impact on me. Talk about gloves. The Lubavitcher Rebbe used to get around 600 letters a day. He didn't allow his secretaries to open them because most of them were private letters. He used to open every envelope himself. You ever tried opening 30 envelopes a day? 100 envelopes a day? And sometimes he would get 700, 800 letters a day. The mailman would come with four huge sacks. Three or four, but sacks as way of mail. Remember, this is before the days of email, this is before the days of faxing. And he sent back answers to everyone, a letter or a note. And his secretaries would not open the envelopes. So there's a Jew, his name is Reb Zalman Khanen, and it, 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 it perturbed him. So he went and he bought a uh, electric opener. You ever use those electric openers? People are not so into mail. But an electric opener, you put it on a machine, it opens it up. So you're opening envelopes, 800 envelopes, 600 envelopes, 500 envelopes. Your, your finger push it can get hurt. The Lubavitcher Rebbe returned it immediately. He thanked him, he returned it. He said, why? He said, it makes too much noise. The, the, the machine makes noise, he doesn't like it. Fine. So he went and he called Sony and he asked him if they have a silent model. A son they don't have. They don't have. They used to have it, but... They don't, anyone in stock, no. But suddenly for the right amount of money, there was one left uh, in stock. And he got it and he was excited. And he gave it into the Lubavitcher Rebbe to be able to use. It was a silent envelope opener. You put it in an envelope. The Rebbe returns it back to him. <laughs> this time he was perturbed. What's, it doesn't make noise. So I guess the Rebbe felt he owed, a, he owed him an answer. Because initially he didn't share it, but the second time he shared it. And he said, he told his secretary to tell this Jew, Reb Zalman Khan, and he said, you know, a lot of Jews write and everybody seals their envelopes in different ways. Some people seal their envelopes with glue and some people seal their envelopes with saliva. Some people seal their envelopes with staples or with scotch tape. 
or any other way they seal their envelope. And there's some Jews who seal their envelopes with their tears. How can I open with a machine that which a Jew sealed with his tears? The electric machine won't pick up the tears. It's a machine. I open it with my fingers. I can, I can absorb that. I can absorb it. The beginning of relating to a person is not when you read the letter, not when you answer the letter. It's when you're opening the envelope. Reading the letter is stage two. It's when you're opening the envelope. But some of us, we want to wear gloves. I don't want to get too close. I don't want to get dirty. I don't want to be affected. And we can understand why. It's not easy. It's not easy to absorb so much. I have enough of my own problems. (laughs) I got my own issues. I have my own chaos. But if you want to be a Kayin Gadol, a Kayin Gadol, a Kayin Gadol is a person who represents the Jewish people, represents all of their souls. There can't be chatzitza. You can't make a separation. You can't build a wall between your soul and your body and the people. That's not a Kayin Gadol. So this is spiritually the beginning of the story that ultimately results in the loss of the chesed, in the loss of the gvura. I can't lead people from a comfortable throne somewhere in an attic, in an ivory tower. I have to be able to touch the texture of people's pain. I have to be able to touch the soil of struggle. This is what we call empathy. And a real mentor and teacher cannot wear gloves. So now the Gemara wants to know who was right. This is not a small question. This is the key question. Who was right? They debated and debated and debated. They're debating it in your house for 25 years. The Kayin Gadol had an opinion. So who's right? Great question. This is an important question. Was Rivka right? Was Yitzchak right? And this is what the Gemara teaches us. That the question is phrased wrong. There's no right and there's no wrong. The Torah sees the goat and the lamb as equals. One doesn't have preference over the other. One is not superior over the other. And when the Torah allows us to bring both as an offering, it doesn't give priority to one over the other. The Kayin Gadol was wrong. And let's understand what that means. The daily offering was brought from sheep, not from goats. 365 days, we bring sheep, not goats. Because Yaakov captures the stability of Klal Yisrael. Yaakov captures the consistency of Klal Yisrael, which is dedicated to a life of wholesomeness, of Ratzon Hash, fulfilling the will of Hashem, of Torah, of Halacha, of Mitzvah, of Mesoida. A healthy human being who lives a healthy life in a healthy home is a, is a person who lives with structure, with discipline, who knows things that I embrace and things that I don't embrace. In order to build a healthy home, a healthy community, one has to construct solid foundations, consistent foundations. Foundations that are anchored in powerful values. We even know with children in, in, a, in a home, a healthy home is a home that has a schedule. There's a time to eat and there's a time to bathe and there's a time for fun and a time for recreation and a time for sleep. There's structure. Those structures are not bad and evil. They're the foundations of creating people who are creative. All creativity must grow only if it's planted in the soil of consistency. Creative artists 
who destroy consistency, ultimately destroy their art. Esau has to discover the Kalim of Tikkun, the Kalim of Yaakov Avinu. The carbon Tamid, how do I serve Hashem every single day? I serve Hashem every single day with a sheep. We need to build our homes and our lives on strong, firm, unchanging values and morals. If not, things disintegrate into chaos. Which is why Rivka says the brachas have to go to Yaakov. Esav is not capable of handling them. You're giving him tremendous light. He has tremendous potential. But right now, unfortunately, he's going to squander it all. Yaakov has to set the standards. And one day he'll be able to give the brachas to Esav. Now Yitzchak wants to bypass the process of transforming Esav slowly and methodically up a ramp. He wants to overwhelm him with light in a full swoop. We understand that. But Rivka says it's not going to work. We need the kevish. We need a ramp. But that should never mean that in Judaism the goat is the second tier. That the goat is inferior. That the soul of a child or a teen or an adult who's struggling with darkness who's struggling with deep challenges, whatever they may be, because of things that happened to him or her, or because of things internally, or any other reason, is somehow to be seen as inferior, as a second class, as a compromised product, as the losers among us who we never have to tolerate. I may have that instinct, that's the that's Yisachar's instinct, I may have that instinct because the pain is very deep and you could respect that instinct. But from God's perspective, they are equal, even if they are different. Each soul has its blessed journey and mission. Never ever must I allow or am I allow, allow myself to lose that perspective, not to challenge myself and say, this soul is a chilek eloikami mal mamish. It's a piece of Hashem. Look at Yitzchak. Yitzchak understood this. Why did he love Esav? Because that's what a father does. A father loves and stays connected to a child without any conditions, even if there are disagreements. We love lambs for what they give the world. But we also cherish goats for what they give the world. And even more, for what they will give the world. Each one of them brings his or her unique light to the world. And if our hearts are not open to embrace that, to cherish it, to admire it, and to empower both the goats and the sheep, then ultimately we are failing not only them, we are failing also ourselves. Which is why the Gemara finishes the story, that Shnehem Shkulin, that ultimately from Hashem's perspective, there's nobody to say, this one is great. This one is great. The tzaddik is superior. The baltruva is superior. Every soul has its journey. And in our process of self-refinement and preparing the world to Geula, we open ourselves up to the soul of Yaakov, to the soul of Esav, understanding that in the ultimate scheme of things, Yitzchak and Rivka will be synthesized. The lights of chaos in the structures of Tikkun. Have a wonderful week. I have a... Uh, 21-year-old Jinji, redhead. A Jinji. Thank you so much. The message was beautiful. Thank you. When he was in 10th grade, he said, I had enough of yeshiva. I quit. I'm out of here. And he quit. And he said, I'm going to work. He went to work. He got a job at New Day as an assistant manager. We supported him in that. 
He put on blue jeans. For, he was wearing black and white. He put on blue jeans. After about a year, he said, I'm sick of chasing the dollar. I'm going back to Yeshiva. And he went to Israel. And wow. He got back into... Amazing story. Yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah. Okay. Shav nachas from all of your children. Sorry? Shav have nachas from all of your children and from yourself. Yeah, we'll make it. Yeah, we do. We do. This class is brought to you by the yeshiva.net. Please help us continue the classes. Make even a small contribution at www.theyeshiva.net slash donate. You've just experienced another Torah class brought to you by TorahAnytime.com.